Good morning, everybody. It's great to have people in every possible part of the, the room today, upstairs, downstairs, in the corner, at the front. It's fabulous. Today we are continuing our series looking at aspects of mission through the lens of different parts of the Bible, and today we're going to be centering on Matthew. And so our call to worship is the final words of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus came and said to them, that's his disciples who were with him at the top of a hill, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now let's come to God in prayer. Let's pray together. God, whose reign extends through the entire universe, who is neither contained nor constrained by any human concept, we gather in the name of Christ to offer our praise and worship. Sometimes it all seems too hard. We strain to glimpse something of your glory, only seeing shadows. And sometimes it seems as if we make it too hard. We use complicated language and abstract concepts to try and get hold of you, and yet you slip through our fingers. You never give up on us. You never stop loving us. You never decide that we are too bad or too silly for your love. So help us today, here, to draw just a little bit nearer to you and to be a little more aware of you. To dare to believe that we might hear you speaking to us and through us. To teach and transform us as we learn from Jesus more and more of who you are, who you call us to be, and what you equip us to do. In this place, among these companion pilgrim disciples, we offer our praise and ask you to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. These closing words from the Gospel of Matthew that we began the service with are among the most commonly quoted when people want to think about mission. The so-called Great Commission, issued by Jesus to his followers, most of whom believed in him, but some of whom were far from certain, is an unambiguous passage in its message. They and therefore, by inference, their successors, are to go into the whole world and make disciples. The work that Jesus began is handed over to these frail and failing men and women, including Thomas, the one we associate with doubt, and Peter, who denied even knowing Jesus, and quite possibly his mother and many of the other women who had been part of the wider group. Their flawed past is just that. It's the past. And now they're going to get on and put into practice what they've learned, making a new generation of disciples. 
The mandate is clear, and it doesn't matter how uncomfortable that makes us. It is an understanding of mission that we have to recognize and consider. The way Matthew's gospel is structured, the bulk of Jesus' teaching is gathered in one place, in chapters 5 to 7, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one thing for us to say that mission is about making disciples, learners of Jesus, but it's another thing to think about what that might look like. It's only as we begin to build up a picture of what a disciple is, and a disciple is basically a follower of Jesus with L plates, that we can begin to think what a discipleship making, a disciple making model of mission might look like. Just to have a bit of a change today, I'm not doing a full-on sermon. We're going to have three short extracts from the Sermon of the Mount read for us. And after each of these, think about, well, if that's the kind of discipleship that they're talking about, how is that expressed in our lives? And how might we respond in our own ongoing discipleship and as we endeavor to help, endeavor to help others begin or continue that same process. So we're going to start with some words from Matthew chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Salt and light. You are like salt for all mankind, but if salt loses its saltiness, there is no way to make it salty again. It has become worthless, so it is thrown out and people trample on it. You are like light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it on the lampstand, where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people, so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Teaching about the law. Do not think that I have come to do away with the law of Moses and the teachings of the prophets. I have not come to do away with them, but to make their teachings come true. Remember that as long as heaven and earth last, not the least point nor the smallest detail of the law will be done away with, not until the end of all things. So then, whoever disobeys even the least important of the commandments and teaches others to do the same will be least in the kingdom of heaven. On the other hand, whoever obeys the law and teaches others to do the same will be great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you then that you will be able to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. You, the disciples of Jesus, are like a very valuable commodity with the potential to savour and preserve society. But if salt does not fulfil that purpose, it might as well be discarded. You, the disciples of Jesus, are like a lighthouse high on a hill, a visible landmark in the darkness, a means of avoiding snares and dangers. It would be utterly stupid to hide that away. Following the eloquent poetry of the Beatitudes, these words, especially as it goes on to talk about the law, are maybe more scary than inspiring. Your mission, should you accept it, 
is to illuminate and transform the society of which you are part. And if that isn't enough, this imagery of saltiness and brightness is linked to the ancient law of Moses, which Jesus has come not to overthrow, to fulfill. And with all of this comes a note of caution. The religious authorities are not measuring up for all their legalism and piety. And unless we can do better at getting what it's all about then we will be the least in the kingdom. It doesn't say you won't get in, but it says you'll be least. Rather than softening the demands of the law, in these chapters, Jesus goes on to ratchet them tighter. Anger is equated with murder and lust with adultery. Divorce, which was permitted to men only and on the most flimsy of grounds, is redefined a lot more strictly. At the heart of each of these is a challenge to legalism. A legalism that has the audacity to consider itself right based on outward obedience to the letter of the law whilst completely missing the spirit of the law and the attitudes that underlie the behaviour. Stamping around muttering angry thoughts is, if we take this seriously, as sinful as murdering the person who has annoyed us. That gave me pause for thought, I have to say. Looking at another human being, finding them attractive, and then imagining intimate relations with them is as bad as the act itself. Knowing the words is a start, but it's never going to be enough. The followers of Jesus are expected to devote themselves seriously to understanding what the message of the words is. It's not enough to be able to recite passages of scripture verbatim if we don't understand what it is that God is really saying to us through it. The challenge for Jesus' disciples then is to learn from him how to approach scripture. Christianity is a religion of the book, And Jesus has been described as the word made flesh. So we as disciples should be devoting time and energy to getting to know this book. Not as a book of instructions, because it quite clearly isn't. But as a book of stories that contain tightness truths to inform our living. And that's no small undertaking. There is not one of us who can ever say we have mined scripture for all it's worth, have distilled out its final meaning for all time. This is a commitment to lifelong learning. The acceptance that we will never quite arrive. The belief that, as the Pilgrim Fathers said, as they set off to a better land in the West, the Lord has yet more light and truth break forth from the word. Mission is about making disciples then has to be in part about enabling others to engage with the scriptures in their own language and in ways that will feed their understanding. Enabling them to take their turn to be salt and light in a new generation or a new location. 
It struck me that the work of organisations such as the Bible Society, who translate the scriptures into more and more languages, or such organisations as the Bible Reading Fellowship, or IBRA, who create devotional study aids, exemplify this kind of view of discipleship-making translated into mission. I wondered, too, if it might be the case that those in our denominational colleges and those who work as theological educators have a special potential to be missional, understood as discipleship-making, teaching people how to mine the scriptures for more of what they're worth, as well as purely educational. And certainly, it seems good to me that we hold in our prayers regularly our own Scottish Baptist College, which I believe attempts that tension of holding together theological education with disciple-making, both in the training of ministers and in serving the church more widely through their non-accredited students. So, discipleship as a word-centred understanding, but there's a lot more to it than that. The second reading is Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. Teaching about prayer. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand up and pray in the houses of worship and on the street corners so that everyone will see them. I assure you, they have already been paid in full. But when you pray, go to your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. And your father, who sees what you do in private, will reward you. When you pray, do not use a lot of meaningless words, as the pagans do, who think that God will hear them, be, who think, who think that God will hear them because their prayers are long. Do not be like them. Your father already knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, may your holy be honoured. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need. Forgive us the wrongs we have done, as we forgive the wrongs that others have done to us. Do not bring us to hard testings, but keep us safe from the evil one. If you forgive others the wrongs they have done to you, your Father in heaven will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive the wrongs you have done. If Matthew 5 suggests that serious engagement with scripture is vital to discipleship, then Matthew 6 focuses on authentic and acceptable religious practices. Beginning with the thoughts on prayers, which we've just heard read for us, the chapter goes on to talk about fasting and about our attitude to our wealth. And once again, it makes for tough reading. The person who learns from Jesus is to be very aware of the potential for hypocrisy to enter their spiritual life, of the ease with which we can slip into seeking human approval rather than being authentic and sincere. It's always really challenging for a preacher to talk about this passage because she or he, by definition, is entrusted with leading other disciples and would-be disciples in public worship. The temptation to say something that's going to go down well 
is enormous. The temptation to kind of please people is big. But at the same time, there is a responsibility of being pastorally sensitive that should weigh quite heavily on the preacher. For whilst there are things that must be said, there are ways that are better and not so good to say them. Disciples of Jesus will take seriously spiritual discipline. This is an assumption of the passage. As well as participating in public worship, they will take time in private to open themselves up to God, no holds barred, and tell it as it is. They will also be open to the possibility that in so doing, they might find themselves changed or challenged as well as comforted. That prayer is difficult. That people fear fouling up is illustrated for us by the pattern prayer or model prayer that we know and love as the Lord's Prayer. And though we tend to learn it in a rote fashion, in whichever tradition we learn it in, I don't really think that was the intention, though learning it rote fashion has a value. Rather, it's a guideline to help us to shape our prayers on those days when we find it impossible to pray. Because the person who tells me they've never had a day when they didn't know how to pray or what to pray is probably not being totally honest. I've actually got a little book upstairs called Prayers for Impossible Days for just that kind of occasion. As disciples of Jesus, as workers for the kingdom, our devotional life should echo the priorities and values of that kingdom. Prayer that is just for me and mine is not what this is about. Our prayer has to align our will with that of God and shape our daily living. We ask God just to give us enough to carry on living. We ask God to forgive us only as we are prepared to forgive. We pray for the incoming of God's kingdom in all that that means. Vital to the health of a disciple is a sustenance that is derived from the rhythm of public and private prayer. It doesn't tell you how long you should pray for. It doesn't tell you what words you should use. It just reminds all of us of that need for the rhythm and sustenance of being part of a community of faith and private devotions. So how then could that relate to mission as discipleship making? It seems to me that one possible way of understanding that is the work of the retreat movement and the retreat centres that offer quiet spaces or away days where hungry disciples can find nourishment, where tired ones can find rest, disillusioned ones can find hope. And perhaps if they're at their best, disciples can take some of their friends who are curious too. Essential to the mission of any church community is its commitment to provide opportunity for worship, for prayer, for reflection, and also for recreation. Because we are whole people, we're not just spirit or just body. It is body, mind, and spirit that we need to nurture as we grow, and therefore that too can be part of our mission.
The last reading is from Matthew chapter 7, 1 to 5. Judging others. Do not judge others so that God will not judge you. For God will judge you in the same way as you judge others, and he will apply to you the same rules that you apply to others. Why then do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own eye? How dare you say to your brother, please let me take this speck out of your eye when you have a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Amen. This last little section of the collated teaching of Jesus is something of a hodgepodge of pithy and, to be honest, sometimes quite scary sayings. And yet it does seem that underlying them all is something about human nature and the attitudes that drive our day-to-day lives. That image of one person wandering around with a huge plank of wood projecting from their eye it's really actually quite funny. Can you picture that? Somebody walking around with a bag of wood sticking in their eye. It's ridiculous. That such a person would have the audacity to attempt to remove a speck of dust or an eyelash from the eye of somebody else is blatantly stupid. If we, with our imperfect understanding, set ourselves up with authority to pass judgment on other people, then God will judge us every bit as strictly. That's scary. The passage goes on to tell us that signs and wonders are not automatically indicators of divine approval, that actually outward appearances can be totally deceptive. So far, we've focused on aspects of discipleship that are about us learning and growing in faith. But this passage starts to root us back into everyday life, reminding that our faith in Christ does not and cannot allow us any sense of superiority. We each remain flawed and fallible human beings. And as long as we live, we will all go on sinning. We will never quite get it all sussed out and sorted. And being aware of that should give us a more honest perception of ourselves. It's not that we're up here and other people are down there. Not at all. We are learners of Jesus. We haven't got there yet. And other people are not beneath us, whatever that might mean to any of us. If we are to attain any measure of saltiness, preserving and savouring society, then we have to be aware of our own bias, the way that we ourselves can be tempted to distort the truth and work to correct that. If we are to be the light on the hill or the lighthouse, if we are to illuminate the potential hazards and pitfalls, we have to pay serious and regular attention to cleaning the glass replenishing the oil, trimming the wick. So am I therefore saying that mission as discipleship is totally about spiritual lives, that practical matters of poverty or disease or injustice can conveniently be ignored? Absolutely not. And one way you could check that out is to read the first uh, 12 verses of 
Matthew 5, the Beatitudes. That, would, that firmly roots us with the practical stuff. As we understand more deeply what the message of Scripture is, as we draw closer to God and endeavor to align our hearts and minds with the divine imperative, we automatically find our attitudes and actions coming more and more into line with kingdom values. Mission as the making of disciples means first learning and then modeling an integrated spirituality that lives out what it professes. A discipleship model of making model of mission is never so arrogant as to assume it knows all the truth but instead recognises its own need to continue learning and growing. I want to finish with a quote from David Bosch, which I think helpfully sums up what mission as discipleship making is about. This is what he says. To become a disciple means a decisive and irrevocable turning to both God and neighbour. What follows from there is a journey which in fact never ends in this life. A journey of continually discovering new dimensions of loving God and neighbour as the reign of God and his justice are increasingly seen in the life of the disciple. So if mission is about discipleship making, it's about us learning and growing and worshipping and then using that to shape the world around us for the good. The opportunity to respond together with a familiar response. Um, When I say the words, Lord, in your mercy, if you feel able, please respond with the words, hear our prayer. Go into all the world, making disciples, and I will be with you to the end of the world. And so we pray for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. Mission belongs to you, Lord. The ground is holy because you are already there. All we are and all we do in faith is dependent on you. And the victory is already won. And so those of us who have embarked on a pilgrimage as your disciples, imperfect and faltering though we are, place ourselves into your hands again this morning, asking for all that we need for the task. All that we need for a word-centered understanding. Lord, word made flesh. May we continually seek fresh insights from your words as we seek to understand our discipleship. And as we reflect on our understanding of what your word means, informs the way in which we pray for others. In a moment of silence, let us call to mind 
someone or some situation about which the words from the Sermon on the Mount have spoken to us this morning. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. For all that we need for authentic spiritual practice. Lord, whose spirit sustains us, may we listen continually to the still, small voice as we seek to explore a deeper spirituality. And we reflect on how the practice of our spirituality influences the way in which we pray for others. In a moment of silence, let us call to mind those who we have not forgiven and reflect again on the words from Matthew chapter 5. And let us pray that forgiveness between individual people may provide the building blocks for wider forgiveness in our world. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. All that we need for grace-filled living Lord, by whose grace we live, may our daily living, the common round, be filled with your grace. And we reflect on how the presence of that grace in our daily living infiltrates the way in which we pray for others by being and doing. How we judge or don't judge. Sawdust and planks. In a moment of silence, let us call to mind a recent conversation or encounter and the way in which we have allowed the grace of God to flow or not flow in that situation and the effect that it may have had on others. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. God, who walks with us in our pilgrimage of faith, into our emptiness, breathe your fullness. Into our tiredness, pour your energy. When we are discouraged, bring us your hope. When we are afraid, bring us your courage. All that your mission may be made flesh anew through our lives. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. And so we go from here in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in the footsteps of Jesus as learners from him and seeking to bring light 
and salt to those around us. We offer our prayer in Christ's name.